I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 15, Growing Old Gracefully. David, I think one of the pleasures of doing this podcast with you, uh, sometimes I just think about it as if we weren't actually broadcasting it to an audience, but that it really is just a conversation that I get to have with you every Thursday morning, and uh, it's become a part of my routine, and I just enjoy you know, having people, you're, you're uh, from a different generation, you're, uh, you know, closer in age, you're closer to my parents' generation, and I think that there is just a lot of uh, wisdom to be gleaned from uh, people with, with more age and experience. And in the book, uh, The Vision for You, you talk about a figure that you had in your life that, that played a role like that, and I think that uh, it's just something that maybe is is missing. So today we're talking missing from uh, from from you know y- young people don't always in this day and age go to their elders for mm. advice uh, or or for for wisdom. Um, so today we're gonna get started off just talking about uh, this idea of how to grow old gracefully, um, and I think you're gonna link it to. Uh, a little bit of uh, some, just some of your experiences, and let's start with what is wrong with uh, what's wrong with the what's wrong with the kids today, David. <laughs> Tell us. All right. So, f- first of all, thank you, Charlie. First of all, this is um, really just I, I'm outlining my personal approach to this. It's it's it's, it's something that uh, ever since I've been very young, I remember when I was five, I was more worried about growing old, and I used to look at my parents who would be. 30 at that stage and think, How, what's it like to be older? It must be horrible. Um, but as th- what I found is, in fact, that as I've got older, um, it, life gets better, in fact, um, and that may change in the future. I, I, for those who are wondering, I'm 56, uh, so I don't know what that counts in the, the modern age. I think it's late middle age or middle age or something like that. So. But the, uh, the thing that's, that strikes me um, and I, as I was getting older myself, is that the, the modern world, if you like, a lot of the, the, what you see being blasted at you from every advertising hoarding, is that the goal is to really is to stay young. And even those who are uh, growing old, uh, if they're doing it well, uh, they, are, they are still young at heart. So that's, that's supposed to be a good thing that you say about somebody and I was just reflecting on this and thinking of exactly the point that you made that uh, we are encouraged to respect our elders uh, not simply as a a duty but one that will benefit all of us if we do that and benefit society because we look to experience Um, and so what what my goal has been is to uh, seek maturity and rather than being young at heart, to seek maturity beyond my years. In other words, wisdom and insight. Uh, whether I've done that or not really is for others to, to, to say, but that, that's what I, I hope for. Um, and there is the thought, really, of this question of why is the cult of youth so dominant? Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it has something to do with the fact that uh, when you don't believe in, a, in an afterlife, then uh, really this life is all you have and this body is all you have. 
and so you want it to be at its best and, and so um, really if all our uh, pleasures and our sense of self-worth is so much of it is linked to being able to uh, seek and enjoy the, 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 the pleasures of the senses um, and so therefore the youth are better able to do that in many ways. Um, they are more sexually attractive, um, their physical prowess is greater, uh, they can consume almost at will without suffering the consequences. Um, all those things, if those are the ends that you're looking for, are attractive. And so it seems that for a lot of people as they get older, the goal is to retain these useful, youthful qualities. Now, I'm not against that in principle, that the body is a good thing, and all those pleasures um, in the, uh, well-ordered, shall we say, are, are good. Uh, but they must be ordered to what our, our ultimate end as a human being, uh, which is spiritual. And mm. it occurred to me, or that includes the spiritual, shall we say, uh, it's body and soul, union with God, that our final end will involve the bodily resurrection. Um, so in other words, uh, supernaturally, we will be restored to, a, to, a, um, to the, I imagine, a, a body in its prime. Um, but uh, I think that uh, there is something more than this. And so this, this, these are the things that I reflected upon. Um, another thing that occurred to me is this, really as I started to get involved in work, uh, which was a, a shock to me, somebody who's not naturally inclined to work. I spent my time as a student until I was 25, uh, which actually by today's standards is not that long, but in those days it was. Um, people go on and on being students nowadays. Now, I don't know why everybody does this. Some, for some people, it's just the way the educational system is structured, you have to go on and get a, a master's and a doctorate if you want to achieve and um, and so very often that takes a long time. But I know that in my case that wasn't the, the goal. I just didn't want to go to work and the student life was something that I quite enjoyed for all the wrong reasons. Um, and then when I got into work, um, I remember hearing somebody uh, describing um, their view of work. They, they, they became a, a trainee accountant. This person became a trainee accountant just um, probably a, a year before I knew I would have to go to work. And we asked him what it's like. And he said, he said, it's just terrible. He said, this is, this is awful. He said, um, I can't, every minute of it I hate. He said, he said, basically now at the age of 25 or whatever he was, 24, um, I'm just waiting for retirement and then for death. So basically, I'm just waiting for death, is what he said. And awful. Uh, <laughs> yes, he was miserable. Now he was—he was—he said this wryly. He had a sort of dry sense of humour. But the, the this I, that always stuck with me that work is um, need not is can be seen as something that we do to put money in the bank. Um, and uh, then we hope to enjoy our retirement and then we die. And that, that is the life plan, 
for most people mm. or for many, as it appeared to me. Um, certainly that was the one that I seemed to be drifting into and it looked as dull and unappealing to me as, as this uh, friend of mine was articulating. Um, then I, uh, people would emphasize in line with this how much you've got to prepare for retirement. Um, you've got, you know, the young aren't putting enough money away. Again, there's very good and sensible reasons to do that. I'm not against that. But in the course of this um, interview, this is on the, B the BBC, actually, um, one person said that his approach was different. He said that all of this um, discussion seems to view retirement as the goal of our life. And he said that, uh, in his view, people were likening it to a secular afterlife. That this is the this is the place where you get all the things that you're supposed to enjoy, mm. and you pay your penance uh, by working in advance. Um, and he said that in his approach, the, the the best a better approach would be to get a job that you enjoy and just keep on working. Um, and I think there's a balance between the two. I would say that the the even better approach. Um, is to then plan for the real afterlife, which we know does exist. And um, then there's a natural transition from life into something beyond. It's the best insurance plan. Yes. Prayer and uh, repentance. <laughs> and the, well, the, the, the life of, the, uh, of a Christian within the church. Um, and that is not to uh, say that we shouldn't plan for all of these things, we shouldn't mm. stay fit and healthy. All of those are good things. But when they become um, magnified to the degree that, that that's all we have, uh, then um, even I, as an atheist, a bitter atheist, as a young man, could see there were problems with this. It, um, because you knew that, that, that um, I would decline bodily. I couldn't put that off. I knew I was going to die. Uh, I knew that when it came to retirement, it didn't matter if I was a billionaire, there were certain things... I wouldn't be able to do that I could mm -hmm. when I was 20. So in the light of this, uh, there was also, uh, I started to reflect upon this. Um, then there are certain people, I, I looked at my own family, and something struck me about my grandpa, this is my mother's father, he died in his 80s, um, he worked all his life and then he, he did retire and he had a happy retirement. Um, and it was something about the way he dealt with uh, his life. So he, he wasn't, uh, as I know, a believer. My, my grandmother went to church. Mm. And her father actually had been a, a, a Methodist preacher. Uh, he uh, had stopped going to church. So it wasn't really about his spiritual life. It was just his approach to life. And the, one aspect in particular... In particular, when he was a young man, he was very, very good at sports. Um, so we're going back to the 1930s now. Um, he was captain of the Northumberland County rugby team and of his local town rugby team and took both to, to national finals um, and was a sort of uh, a well-known figure in this market town in Northumberland. Uh, which normally wouldn't be so good at, at rugby. He even got onto the bench of the England team, so he was picked, selected as a 
as a substitute once, mm-hmm. and never actually played. Um, then my grandmother, I remember my, it was my grandmother who told me this later, at the age of 30, he just suddenly decided to stop playing rugby and took up golf and tennis. Uh, he got his golf handicap down to five and he played for the local uh, Tyndale Tennis Club um, and uh, played in the first team there. And then at the age of 50, he gave up tennis and golf. He just decided that's enough. And he took up beekeeping. Hmm. And he died at 84. And the thing that he did longest was beekeeping, which he did right until the time that he died. And he used to get help taking the the, the beehives from the front garden in this uh, town. I remember every time we visit them, we'd see the hives uh, next to the flower bed in the front garden. And then in the summer, he would take these hives with friends of his, his little group, and they'd take them out to the moorland where the heather was, um, and the bees would make heather honey for the summer, mm. and they'd come back for the rest of the year. And um, as a, a beekeeper, he ended up writing a local column for uh, the, the paper on beekeeping. He has a small weekly column, and that became his community, and he clearly enjoyed it right, right until his death. When he died, um, the local paper wrote an obituary on him, and uh, it was just about his life, and it may be um, ten column inches or something, not a, not a huge article, but just a little thing that went on the, the inside pages, and um, it had a photograph of him, and the, the, the headline said, Sports Hero Dies. And my, I remember we looked at this paper, the, the local paper, and it was a very nice article. It was beautifully written, and it talked about his life. But um, my grandmother, who had known him, had met him when he was this star rugby player and married him, but of course known him all through the rest of his life and had outlived him. She looked at that and she remarked to me, and she just said, isn't sport overrated? Um, there's so much more to him that I know about. I, I, I've even forgotten about him as a rugby player that this article is talking about. Um, and I remember thinking, yes, actually, he has he had moved on in what he did uh, to uh, other things that were appropriate to his age, and um, he'd grown. He'd accepted um, his time of life and done things of the right, and, and it, that gave him a dignity, I think, that um, certainly I respected. I, I always enjoyed going to see him. Um, so that was one little lesson. Uh, then this made me reflect when I was writing the, the Vision for You book. Uh, remember, remember that um, I was given this way of discerning personal vocation that led to my conversion by um, this person, David, who you referred mm. to. Um, and my, what has happened to my grandfather uh, connected with something that I wrote about in that book, which was about the, the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross. And I remember that when you read this, uh, you said to me, uh, you laughed at the, the David's remark, because... The reason I brought this up was that um, I had gone into a, a bookshop 
shortly after I met David, and I was just getting into a, a spiritual life for the first time and beginning to get quite excited by this. Mm -hmm. And that title jumped out at me, and I, I think it does with a lot of people. The Dark Knight of the Soul, it sounds sort of broody and interesting. And, um, and so I read it, and I don't know that I um, understood it very well, uh, but one thing that I do remember is uh, thinking that maybe my unhappiness was the dark night of the soul, that I had this sort of holy depression that only saints can have. Um, because the way that John of the Cross wrote about this um, state of mind, uh, uh, he talked about it as though only it was at a particular stage in spiritual development. Mm. And so I flattered myself that I was uh, at that stage and that actually I didn't have to take responsibility for my, my own happiness. This had, this had come from God. Um, and I mentioned this to David, and his remark was, uh, don't flatter yourself, lad, you're not that holy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the word, when I, I went back and had a look at it when I was writing this, this book, um, and because I wanted to know more about it. And the thing that struck me when I was reading The Dark Night of the Soul um, so this would be two or three years ago now, uh, so that reading it for the second time, was, first of all, is that it wasn't an unhappy state of mind, what, um, as we would normally talk about it. There is um, an aspect of suffering and pain, um, at least sort of a, a, a mental pain and unhappiness, um, but nevertheless, it is a good state to, to be in. And the way that I characterise it in the, the book is that, um, that God gradually withdraws from us the capacity to take pleasure in good things, um, that, that nevertheless those things that are less than God. So um, I would say that in most people's lives we take pleasure in material things. I've got a cup of tea and a flask in front of me, I enjoy that. Um, but that isn't my my life's goal isn't to drink tea constantly. So we have these things pro properly ordered. And in the Christian life, all of these good things can be enjoyed if they're ordered to our ultimate end, which is um, the union with God in heaven. Mm. And so uh, the goal is to consider uh, the material, the spiritual, the physical, um, and the supernatural, um, and order of our activities uh, towards our ultimate happiness. Um, now what seemed to be happening uh, in, with St. John of the Cross um, was that these, the pleasures of these good things but lesser things were being denied. Um, and sometimes even lesser spiritual things. So certain prayers, for example, would seem extremely painful hmm. um, to these people because what God was doing was um, turning them from these lesser, though nevertheless noble um, pursuits and happinesses to the, the ultimate happiness, which is God himself. Uh, and so by denying those pleasures, sometimes it would be a shock, but then the fruits of that would be a, a, a supreme happiness, as St. John of the Cross describes it. Now, what has this got to do with my grandpa? Uh, it seemed to me uh, that in some way he was 
following that pattern over the course of his life. He was gradually um, realizing that he was incapable of uh, deriving pleasure from rugby. So he didn't go on so long that he injured himself, which is what I did with playing soccer. I, I stopped playing soccer and actually went to play tennis uh, when I started getting injuries. And this would be at about the age of 34. Uh, and I realized I just wasn't recovering quickly enough. Yeah. And I was, you know, I didn't enjoy the fact that I was getting worse at, foot at soccer, football. Um, but what he did is that he just naturally realized that he was moving on and did things that were appropriate to his age and his state of life. And so in, I think enjoyed life even more as a mm. result. Um, and that was really just the, 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 that little lesson, that context of seeing there was a dignity to it. Mm. And so therefore this encouraged me to double down on my spiritual life. So um, it's not just the physical things, I, um, but also um, realizing that there are higher goods and making sure that I develop spiritually uh, and move forward in my spiritual life. And so much of writing that Vision for You book was, was in line with that. You know, going back to this idea that, you know, physical prowess is, is not the most important thing and uh, that God is kind of teaching us to, or weaning us off in a way, everything that is, that is not God um, how do we strike the balance between that kind of a view and uh, something that kind of denigrates the importance of the body? I think it was the Albigensian heresy or something that, that totally you know, denied that the body was even good. Uh, and so you had people trying to exit this you know, uh, fleshly prison that we're, that we're in in our time uh, here below. Uh, how do we avoid that sort of opposite extreme yes that's a good point although I, it's funny when I, when I hear about that heresy I just it, it's very difficult to imagine anybody having that today <laughs> it was so um, caught up in the pleasures of the body you, you wonder how that could arise or I do anyway uh, I can the, 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 the opposite the heresy of too much emphasis on bodily pleasure I mm. believe that that's easy to see how that can be a temptation um, but uh, I think it is about striking a balance. So as, as, as you know, I do uh, stretches and I do exercise. I'm 56 and I, I don't want to be uh, going into old age unable to do things physically. Um, but I think it's, uh, it, it's recognizing the proper place of those things. Mm -hmm. And what I have found um, is that, for example, uh, just in my own life, I, I can't run particularly. I used to do a lot of play a lot of sports um, and love doing it, uh, but I just find that if I jog, for example, I go jogging, I get bad knees and a bad back, and in the end, I just decided not to do it. So what I do is I walk, and I thought about my grandpa, and I just thought, well, at this stage, uh, I enjoy hiking. I'm going to do that, uh, and that um, will be my exercise. Um, and I'm going to try and eat healthily, but mm. not be obsessed by it. And I'm going to try and stretch so that I don't, um, I'm able to be flexible. Um, and gradually adopted these things. And it's funny, I'm more disciplined now in those things than I ever was as a youth. I just relied on, I remember we used to go and play soccer when I was at university. We used to pride ourselves on having a heavy lunch of 
hmm. steak and kidney pie, French fries, and baked beans as a sort of mandatory lunch before we went Four. to play. Wow. Played soccer and at the age of twenty, you could do that. And well, I couldn't hope to do that now. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it's about realizing that um, these things are important, uh, but nevertheless, they're not the most important things. Um, and and developing a spiritual life in tandem, and starting to derive pleasures from other things. So I'm more interested now that the pleasures I have are my interest in art and culture, for example, that yeah. developed naturally. Um, and I'm able to derive pleasures from different things mm. as well. Um, and in fact, I would say that uh, it's what you have to be careful in this. But one of the things that is a sign of this, we use reason to judge as well. That's very important. But I just find that my, my pleasures in, in hiking, for example, has replaced what used to be my pleasure in sport. Yeah. And so sometimes I think it would be nice to be able to play tennis as I used to or soccer as I used to, but I actually don't miss it that much. I, the, the other things that I do seem to stim, stimulate my desire for whatever they give me yeah. in a different sort of way. Yeah. Um, now, whether it's the perfect balance, I'm not going to say that, but that, that's what I find. Yeah. yeah. And this, this does seem like a healthy development that as we age we would start to put less emphasis on our bodies being able to do all the things that they did when we were young because we all know that we're headed to a, a final destination that involves the eventual complete breakdown of our body so let's talk now a little bit about a subject that most people try to avoid uh, avoid like the plague you might say which is death <laughs> And yes. death and dying, when the body stops working, eventually that's you know, the, one of the inevitable things that uh, we all share in common is that we're all going to die. Yes. Uh, so how should we look at this in the context of aging gracefully? And is it possible to, uh, to, to you know, go peacefully into, into that good night? Or should um, we rage against the dying of the light? One hopes so. Death, dying, and taxes. Yeah. <laughs> but the three inevitable. Anyway. So, yeah, I um, was given reason to reflect upon this in my own life uh, when my mother died uh, about three years ago. She uh, got cancer um, and went through chemotherapy and uh, radiotherapy and for a while was in remission and then it emerged as brain tumours um, and she declined quite rapidly and I managed to see her as it turned out just about two weeks before she died. I went back to England uh, with my brother who lives here and we spent some time there. And when I saw her, what struck me uh, was that uh, the, the, the brain cancer was affecting her in certain ways. So she was losing um, certain physical capabilities, not because the uh, the muscles or the bone were being affected particularly, um, but because the, the brain which controls those capabilities was being affected. Mm. Um, and uh, she was aware of this, I could tell, although it was difficult to tell to what degree, because she was, she was also losing her capacity to talk. 
And so this, um, her ability to communicate was difficult. And it wasn't, I wasn't sure whether that meant that she was actually um, able to receive information from me. I, I, t I remember I assumed initially that she wasn't, that, that really everything was closing down. But actually, I think, and it's one of the things I thought about afterwards, I wish I'd been aware of this um, more at the time, that she was able to hear and communicate, uh, or, or rather receive communication. Hmm. Um, and formulate thoughts, actually, but it was the speech capacity that was good. Mm. Um, and um, I was able to remember that when just sadly, a, a, a two years later, my sister, who was younger than me, she, she also got cancer, brain cancer, and she died a year ago. Um, and she went through the same thing. So I saw two members of my, my family uh, go through this. And uh, one of the things that I reflected upon um, once my mother had died was, is it possible to be happy in, in these situations? So um, it's not just that the physical capabilities are going, the mental faculties are going as well. So there was more there than I realized in, in my mother at that time, but inevitably the, the intellect is affected. Um, and so, uh, for example, one of the little thing I saw with her was that um, she couldn't even, for example, just enjoy a telephone, a, a television show, uh, because she would drift away um, and so would lose, wasn't really able to concentrate on it, on it sufficiently to pick up the narrative, if you like. Mm -hmm. So she really was, in a way, living in the moment um, and in a way that was enforced upon her. Um, and so... What I thought about was, well, this this could happen to me. There are now two members of my family who died this way. Um, and is there any preparation for it? And um, it occurred to me that perhaps the contemplative prayer that uh, I describe in the book, A Vision for You, remember I wrote this book after, after my mother had died. It, it was before my sister had died. Um, but very much in the light of what I thought my response to this, um, I included a, a chapter on contemplative prayer and um, spoke about this, and we even did a podcast about this some time ago. And uh, it occurred to me that um, what contemplative prayer is doing, if you remember the basic principles of this, we, it, it involves meditation, which is conscious thought, um, perhaps on a text, we described a method whereby um, we can focus on a, a series of images that have certain um, aspects of salvation history attached to them. So we talked about that. But you're, We you're can include the, uh, the PDF of that in the notes for the show, the, the contemplative prayer with visual images. Right, great. Um, and it's something I think that we're going to make available more widely, including the images, Indeed. to encourage it. Um, but my understanding of how that works is, that, is after the meditation, there is prayer. So it's following the pattern of uh, the, the scripture, the, 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 the tradition of scripture meditation, which is you read it, you think about it, then you pray um, in response to that, and then you just uh, 
sit quietly, and that is contemplatio, now contemplation. Now, that is a, an, a, a state of alertness, and so that, in a sense, it's not a, a think-nothing process like Eastern meditation. It's slightly different, in that we're aware and we're alert, and we're, we're, but we're not initiating thoughts as far as possible. We're, we're monitoring the thoughts that come into our mind and saying, is this good, is this bad? If it's good, we just take it through to its conclusion and then go back to that alert quietness. Um, maybe through the repetition of a prayer, which just cuts out distraction like the Jesus prayer. Mm -hmm. um, but what this is doing is is developing our receptiveness, that faculty for receptiveness to God. Now, if God chooses to make himself known to us in that state, um, that, that is in his gift. It's not something that we demand. And for many people, I imagine, he never does. We, we, we have contemplative prayer. Um, and we might um, mull over these thoughts that occur. We might just be repeating the Jesus prayer. We might have moments of quietness where we're just waiting. Um, but not, not all of us are destined to have a Teresa of, of, of Avila-type um, vision as a result of this. Some might, um, but not all of us. But that doesn't matter. It's still worth pursuing because the end of this is not how we feel during the prayer. Uh, the fruits of this come through the, the, the time that we spend doing this because it develops that faculty for re receptiveness. And when we talked about this earlier, I emphasized what I felt was important, that where we make use of that most commonly is in the liturgy, where we have a, a direct encounter with God. Um, of course, at the, the heart of it, it's in the, the Eucharist. Um, and a, a dynamic of love is one of receiving God's love and then returning it to him. And that um, active reception, if you like, uh, ordered reception of love, which Benedict XVI calls eros, um, is, that can be manifested as desire, but it is consummated in an ordered acceptance of the love of another. Yeah. Um, not, not just romantic, but all sorts of love. Um, God, yeah, we want to... Oh well, yeah. I'm just I'm thinking about the the urgency in some sense of developing that receptivity because I know that my default, even when I'm in mass or in prayer, is my mind gravitates. If I'm if I really think about what it what it's doing, it's tending to think in very instrumental fashion about you know what I need to get done, and a lot of the a lot of the times it comes back to a certain anxiety about the future. Uh, and this segues a little bit into the, the discussion of retirement and the thought okay. of, you know, having enough for tomorrow. And my reading of, uh, of Scripture and the New Testament in particular is that one of Jesus' most urgent messages is, you know, to, to stop focusing so much on having enough stuff for tomorrow. You know, there's the, the man who builds a, a bigger barn to store up his grain and, you know, not knowing that... His, his life could be taken from him tomorrow. Yes. Uh, and so I do notice when I, you know, when I start to sort of still my thoughts uh, that, that I can focus less on, uh, you know, a future that is very uncertain, but that doesn't necessarily uh, put the, put things in the right order of priority um, when we, when we take this, this long view. Right. And, and so there are immediate 
benefits from this. And, and also, it's, it's, it's not just with our thoughts, but um, the senses. It's giving the senses good things. So that as I do this, this is why I was encouraging people to look at sacred mm. images, even in the course of our worship, because then uh, even if we're not actively looking, the information that is our eyes are receiving, shall we say, we're not yeah. focusing on what we're looking at visually, um, is good. And so we're training the, the receptivity of that and the processing of that information, which takes place inside our minds to do that well. And you're right, it, it has an impact immediately, and we never know when we're going to need this. Uh, but to, to come back also to my mother, which t ties in nicely with what she's saying, is that um, what struck me is that that may be all she had at that point. Mm. Um, that you know, For her capacity to be happy at that point would be down to her ability to accept God's grace. Yeah. Uh, and maybe she couldn't even formulate the words of a prayer. So she couldn't even silently sit and she wasn't a Catholic, wasn't a Catholic, and you pray the rosary or say prayers or the Jesus prayer. Maybe it's, perhaps there's a point at which you can't even do that. Yeah. Um, but that uh, we always have, a, as long as we're alive, we always have a, a spirit, mm -hmm. which is those faculties of intellect and will that are open to the to the love of God are there, uh, and so uh, that's what the spirit is, the, the spiritual component of the soul, if you like, or the, as is a, an aspect of the soul which is spiritual. Yeah. Um, and so I was just thinking, well, that th this would train me for it. And the other thing is that I have this sort of picture of old people's homes of people sitting in comfortable chairs, uh, largely neglected, mm -hmm. <laughs> it is fair, I'm sure they're not, most aren't like this at all, but with the TV on just all day, and they're sitting in front of the TV, yeah. and, and that is all that they're getting. Um, and I think that the other thing that this uh, practice can do is to train us to cut out distraction, if you like, yeah, and be receptive to what is good and cut out what is bad. Um, and that's because I've noticed the same thing. That actually, it, it, um, I'm definitely not perfect, but uh, it is better. I'm less inclined to be distracted mm. and, and to notice when I am and refocus um, in the course of the liturgy. Yeah, that image of the the old folks home, <coughs> one that you know, it is it is kind of depressing, and uh, I don't know what share of the of the blame the younger generation bears for not uh, you know heeding or trying to get some of the wisdom from our elders, but I think that there is also the sense of uh, that situation resulting from a problematic mentality. It's it's the problem between inter between generations where nowadays it seems like a lot of people who maybe have planned for their retirement and put such an emphasis on retirement are now reaping what they've sown, in the sense uh, you know they're they're thinking that they would could make themselves you know secure just by you know, saving for for the future, but um, without sowing the seeds of uh, you know. Uh, 
I've got this quote here from, it's, uh, it's Hanser's von Balthasar uh, commenting on and quoting uh, Charles Pegui. I don't, I don't know if I'm saying that name right, but um, when, when you mentioned the old folks home, it made me think of this. And he says, the, the quote uh, from Pegui is, uh, the modern world as a whole is a world that thinks only about its own old age. It is a monstrous old people's home, an institution for pensioners. Avarice in the form of anxiety about tomorrow is the lord of all the world. Uh, so there's kind of this sense that if, you know, if you put your, if you kind of lay up your treasures just in your, your 401k and things like yes. that, thinking that uh, that all will be well, you might be missing the forest for the trees. Yes, and, and, and uh, as, as, as I would stress, that's not, I'm not anti-401k. Sure. It's about getting your priorities right and realizing the most important are these higher things. Um, it's interesting that uh, you talked about this in the opening, this uh, place of uh, people who are more advanced in years to be available to offer help and advice through wisdom, one hopes, from the young. And so uh, I would not have called myself as a young person, one who is naturally respectful of the uh, those who are older than me, it, I had what's, I've heard it described in some situations as the gift of desperation hmm. that made me listen to this guy. And it wasn't because he was elderly or uh, it wasn't his age alone that gave me the respect which I ought to have had given to him as a person, actually. Yeah. It was just that I felt he could help me in that particular situation. But as I, again, as I've gone on in this, I think I've realized that what he says is exactly true, that it is a good for a society where those who have experience um, actually uh, are available to those who are young, and those who are young look to them to make, to, take, make the best of it, to make use of it. And I think in part... Uh, another thing that with thinking about that, that I'm aiming to do or hoping to do is to be an example of one of those people. One of the things that David said to me as a condition of, of taking me through this process was that I would be ready to pass it on to others mm -hmm. as, as he was to help others as he was helping me. And I agreed. But of course, he had no control over me. I could have just said, that's it, oh, I'm away. Um, but I understood once I was through this that so much of my happiness uh, and continued happiness and deepening of this spiritual life would rest upon my being available at least to do this. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's another aspect, I think, of uh, that we can focus on. First of all, try to re be respectful to those who are older than us simply by virtue of their age. It's good for a society when they do that. But those that we take guidance from, we need to choose well. And uh, so my goal is to try to be somebody who others might look to. Uh, ultimately, it's their choice. And if they don't wish to, then maybe they're making a good decision. I don't know. But it's, it's really to, how can I be of service to others as I grow older? It's really to hope to grow in wisdom and love and be an example of those things that others might think perhaps 
they could learn from. Not because I have any special um, gift in these areas, but this is something that all of us, every single one of us, can aim to do. And it, mm -hmm. Everyone is going to have experiences and uh, be have an understanding of how to apply those experiences in particular areas, which is going to be useful to somebody. Um, one of the things that David said to me, again, it was, uh, so many lessons from him. He said, when you talk to people about this program, he said, just share your experience, just offer your experience. Don't offer opinions or judgments unless they ask for them mm. directly. But what he said is that if you just tell people what you've done and the effect it's had, he said, you're the world's number one expert in your life, and nobody can quarrel with that. Yeah. And in your life, which is a, a historical fact, it can be of help, then that, that, that's the thing to offer first. And whether people are interested beyond that is up to them. Yeah. I'm also thinking now about uh, a line from the Old Testament that has always really resonated with me uh, from the book of uh, Malachi, Malachi uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, uh, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Uh, and... What, it makes me think of a, a few things. One uh, is a friend of mine, a Turkish friend, who has just noted that uh, in, in the rural areas of Turkey, there's a problem where the, the parents are, uh, are, are getting to an age where they're thinking about uh, you know, how to divide up their inheritance. And this causes a whole lot of problems and squabbles among the, the siblings. And it should be a cause for the siblings, you know, there's an abundance for them to, to, to share, but um, in the form of land or, or whatever mm -hmm. it might be, but no one actually wants to work on the land. And so it just becomes this question of, well, how do we divide up this, this pie? And so it becomes this intense squabble and the, the parents and the kids are kind of uh, jaded from one another. And just thinking about, yeah, again, kind of the intergenerational problems that we have I think that in the United States, most of the wealth is held by people who are 65 and up, uh, and there's this sort of problem of how do we, you know, channel that wealth into <clears throat> the next generation and make it make it uh, something that that you know continues to grow rather than something that just gets sort of hoarded and and spent on the the last years or even sometimes the last days of someone's life. <clears throat> when we get all these expensive medical interventions uh, that, that don't actually prolong any kind of quality yes. of life. So I, I think this is a, probably a longer conversation, but it's one that I'm really interested in having as my parents get older. And I just start to think about, you know, how can we have a healthier relationship to death and dying so that it doesn't, so that we don't just feed an industry that's all about um, kind of, you know, uh, the, keeping the, 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 um, you know, I, I want to be sensitive in how I talk about this, but I do think that there is a real problem with, um, with medical spending on uh, things that, that don't actually give any quality years of life. Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, and it's a, a difficult subject. It's interesting um, what you're saying. So, 
there's a couple of things that come to mind. The, 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 the actual uh, moral dilemmas that the doctors face and families face with um, their relatives, that's, that's a very complicated subject. And, and it's one of those things where I just think, gosh, I, I'm not, I just don't know how you balance things. You've got to do something. Right. Um, there's the question about death panels. Yeah. And, uh, I think I'm actually, you know, in some ways, at least sympathetic to the, you know, the, I think that the, the phrase death panels is a little bit unfair, just in the sense that um, when, when we, especially when we talk about sort of socialized medicine, uh, you know, there, there is, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are not unlimited resources. And so decisions have to be made and whether it's uh, insurance companies or a government panel, um, you know, at some point you, you can always make a decision to try some, uh, you know, radical thing and just sort of throw more money and more resources. But at a certain point, I think a healthy, insane society would say, you know, or, and it, or healthy, insane individuals would say, you know, but people can't make rational decisions that, that close to a situation oftentimes. So it can be good to have an outside force, maybe, you know, a private yes. insurance company that's that's rationing out um, and deciding when, when the <clears throat> procedure that might have a, a shot at extending someone's life by a few days uh, at the at, you know great expense, whether that's worthwhile or not. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I think that however we resolve those things, uh, um, so there's so the cases where um, it seems that this some people think this is being a done wrongly of course are always high profile life support machines mm -hmm. um, you get you get a lot of these in the British national health system mm -hmm. because as, as you say decisions have to be made and wh whoever's on the wrong side of that line um, s somebody has to suffer and I, I think that um, the way whatever however we deal with those and however that discussion might run I think that it's going to be better handled more properly if we can, can cultivate this attitude of um, cooperation and love and, and harmony and community. Um, and um, I remember when I was at high school, my headmaster uh, gave us a, a class and uh, he was trying to encourage us to respect our parents. Hmm. And he said... Um, he, he, it was part of the, the the class that we had once a week that was called Divinity. Uh, this is in an English uh, independent school. And so we had Divinity once a week in the 1970s. And so he pointed out the commandment, honour thy father and thy mother. And something, I, again, I don't know the exact words, but something like that, they, that you might be you might lead a long life. Mm -hmm. And so he actually said to us, how do you... Do you think we can test that? Um, and of course, everyone was saying, well, you, you, you find people who honour their father and their mother and see how long they live. And he said, well, actually, there's another way. So I think we'd have been 14 at the time. He said, what you can do is pe find people who have lived up to an old age and see whether they did. And he was convinced that actually there was some correlation there. I don't mm. know if that's right. Um, but uh, I think that um, however we do this, um, it really is about uh, 
trying to grow in the spiritual life so that we um, look to our elders in an appropriate way. And of course, the ultimate person we have respect to is God. And when we appreciate these hierarchies in, in life, these natural hierarchies that exist, these natural communities, these natural associations of family, and I would say nation, if you like, um, if we strive to um, inform our lives and our interactions with these values and uh, perhaps see a society that reflects these through evangelization primarily mm-hmm. uh, is going to be the way to affect that change. It's a never-ending job. It's never going to be there. But I, th- I have a sense that some of these situations will sort themselves out naturally to a large degree. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, so one hopes, therefore, that when I uh, reach that situation, uh, it, I'm going to be I'm pretty sure at some point, unless I die suddenly in a car crash or something, I'm yeah. in a situation where I am going to be dependent. Um, and even at my time in life, I can think about, well, how am I, how am I um, treating those to whom I owe respect? It begins with God. Yeah, uh, but then after that, it is those natural figures to whom respect is due, um, and I think uh, the the best thing I can do is uh, try to show that respect, um, and then uh, trust that uh, through that, that I might be worthy of uh, worthy of respect. That by showing respect, I become a respectful person to whom, in turn. Uh, respect is due, that I will naturally uh, become one through a, the growth and wisdom and love that that may um, develop in me, um, as I may become one who will earn respect and love from others. Um, that's the principle that I work on. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com. Thank you.